tired people in the house today. How many of you were students at camp this past week? Just a show of hands. I may be a, this may be a bad preacher count, but I think we had around 200 students at camp. Maybe, yep, Jim Hinkle is giving me a head nod. Yes, in the right direction, all right? How many of you were adult volunteers, teachers, sponsors this week at camp? A show of hands. I think we had 60 to 70 of you who were there. Just want to thank you. And it, it really blows me away the number of adults who take a week of vacation to be a part of church camp. And for all of you who poured into the students, second graders, through seniors, through uh, living in their cabins for a week, to teaching, the love you poured into them, you, uh, God used you for kingdom impact that may not bear fruit for years to come, but thank you for, for what you have done. And for those who were baptized at camp this week, can we show our gratefulness to God again? working in and through them. <clears throat> so grateful. And for those of you who have not cut up, caught up on sleep yet, uh, make it through the sermon, make it through lunch, go home and crash. We have some melatonin and NyQuil sitting outside, all right, for you to get on the way home. I want to welcome all the guests who are here. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to fill out that connection card, which is connected to the bulletin. Take it back to our connection center. We would love to know you a little better. Give us some ways we can pray over you. We take that stuff very seriously. I want to welcome those who are joining us online. We have people who join us online almost every single week all over the place and welcome those who are joining us online. Uh, we're in a series right now that I've called Bible Tweets. We're taking five weeks where I'm unpacking, just helping us dive into the five shortest books in the Bible. There are five books in the Bible that are only one chapter each. Um, and I called it Bible Tweets because Bible postcards or Bible posts didn't sound right. But these are short books. And what I'm trying to do is just show you over a five-week period of time that God can do really big things through small things that often it's small efforts or just a few words that can change a life, that can bless a church. So here are five books with four of them in the New Testament that were written to encourage and edify churches. So I want to encourage you this morning to do two things. One, I want you to think of what is one thing that God's going to say through me that can bless and encourage your life. And I encourage you to write it down because if you're like me, you're going to forget it when you leave here. What's one thing that, that I say that can bless and encourage you or challenge you that you need to spend a little more time with and what's one thing I will say in the next few minutes that you need to encourage someone else with? Now, if you uh, have your Bibles with you on a phone or on a, you have your written Bible in front of you, I also will have some verses on the screen. I want you to open your Bibles up to 2 John. If you have trouble finding it, go to the back. There's Revelation. Right before Revelation is a book called Jude. Right before that's 3 John. Right before that is 2 John. I want to spend some time in 2 John this morning. It's one of the shortest, I think the shortest book in the entire Bible. A lot of times what these people would do, and John did this a couple of times because he wrote 2 John and 3 John, is he had a piece of paper, like a papyri, it was a, just a piece of paper, and instead of flipping over to the back, he would just write on one page, just everything he could get into one page, he would do it. And here's how 2 John begins, and I want to start off just with the first part, all right? It says, the elder to the lady elect and her children. And I could not help it this week. 
The last few weeks, every time I read 2 John, I found myself using a British accent in the first verse, all right? I mean, when you look at that, can you not help but think, you know, am I reading the Bible or is this the royal wedding, you know? Is this, is this a Bible or am I, am I in an episode of Downton Abbey, all right? Why is he using this kind of language? Like, why, why didn't he say his name? Who's he writing? Who's the elect lady, all right? He starts off with, I'm the elder and I'm writing to the elect lady. So why the code language? Why didn't he just say, hey, I'm John and I'm writing to so-and-so or to this church or even a city. He doesn't say any of that. It's just, hey, here's the elder and he's writing to the lady elect, the elect lady. Who is that? And sometimes they would do this kind of stuff. Maybe there's code language because they knew if this ended up in the wrong hands, maybe the Roman uh, power, you know, the wrong hands, they would just throw it away. But if there's some language that doesn't sound like it's a specific person or a specific church, they would let the letter move on. We don't know. Most people believe this is John who wrote 2 John. Most people believe John wrote five of the 27 books in the New Testament. And at this point in John's life, he would have been fairly old. He would have been in his 80s, maybe 90s. So he's taken time toward the end of his life to write some messages to churches that he loved to encourage them and edify them. Now, we don't really know who the elect lady is, who this lady is. We, uh, why didn't he use a name for this? Was, this the, was it to a specific woman who was a leader in that church? Was it a specific woman or maybe the woman who had a house where the house church met? Or, or maybe he's, this is language for the church and he's writing to the church. I, I think this is John who writes it. And I think he's writing to more than just one person. He's writing to edify a church. And he starts off with, hey, I'm an elder and I'm, the, uh, and I'm writing to the elect lady and to her her children. The church is going to receive it. They're going to be blessed by it. Now here's the deal with John. He's older in life. He had been an apostle for decades, had a deep love for God, a deep love for the church. And one reason people think this is John who wrote 2 John is because there's language in 2 John that sounds just like John. Do you ever hear phrases and you're like, that sounds just like my granddad or just like my grandma or my, my dad used to say that all the time. Those are phrases that, that sound just like him. And this is what John would do. So here's how 2 John begins. The elder to the elect lady. And I would use an accent, but Casey says my impersonations are bad, all right? I tried doing a British accent in the house, and Casey's like, still sounds like East Texas, all right? I'll try it again. That sounds Jamaican, all right? I'll try it again. It just doesn't work, all right? But he's writing, the, the elder to the elect lady and our children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Here are five words that show up in 2 John, that show up in the Gospel of John, that show up in 1 John. These are five words that were important to the heart of John, and he thought they were important for the church to have to form them too. I want you to look at these on the screen, write them down, because I want to use this as an assessment this morning for your spiritual life. Here are five words that he banks on. Walking with God. Are you walking with God? Truth. What's the truth? Where are you going to find the truth? Love. John's a big proponent of love. Talks more about love than anybody else. Agape love, commitment love, unconditional love. The love that we receive from God. Love that we give to others. Obedience. Obedience is big for John. That if you love God, you will obey God. And fifthly is abiding. Remaining. Staying connected to God. All right, I think it's so important for you to have ways to measure your spiritual growth and maturity, to do some form of 
assessing where you are with God. And if you were to look on the screen right now and put a grade on those of how you were doing or a scale of one to 10, however you want to do it, maybe this is something you take to lunch or you have a conversation with family or even in your life group. How are you doing in these areas when it comes to walking with God, to standing in truth, to loving one another as God loves, to being obedient before God and understand that God is not just one who wants us to be obedient because God is throwing out rules and just wants you to obey him. God has given us rules to protect the beauty and the greatness and the sanctity of life. And then abiding in God, staying connected. Uh, I've been thinking a lot the last few weeks of Deborah Forsyth, dear woman in the church that we lost. And there's a story I wanted to tell at her funeral a few weeks ago, but I didn't. And real quick, total tangent, all right? I try not to take these much, but my family, we were going up to Indianapolis last week and we stopped at Louisville Sluggers, a museum to hang out with. And it's where a lot of major league players have their bats that are made. It takes five minutes to make a whole set of bats for a major league baseball player. And while we're in there, of all major, of all thousand plus major league players who were having their bat made when we were doing our tour, it was Logan Forsythe, a nephew of Tony and Deborah. And it was a day I'd been thinking about them a lot. So it just, I don't know, maybe it was a God moment. Maybe it was a coincidence. It was just cool. But there was a, a few years ago, Tony and Deborah and the two kids were walking out of church. We were at that back door. They were about to go out into the parking lot. And Tony stopped me. And Tony said, Josh, and I forget exactly how he said it, but he's like, Josh, I just, I, I need to grow closer to God. Give me something to do. What do I need to do this week to grow closer to God? And I said, Tony, are you going to lunch with your family today? He said, yeah, we're leaving here and we're going to lunch. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit at lunch with your wife, Deborah, with Trevor and Hannah. And I want you to pull out Galatians chapter five. And I want you to read the fruit of the spirit. That the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I want you to ask them to go through each one of those and tell you how you are doing in your life in those areas. And Tony paused for a moment, and then he looked at me and said, yeah, that idea's not going to work. Do you have another one? All right. <laughs> and that, that's not a good measuring stick to use, all right? But how do you do any form of measurement or assessment in your life of when it comes to how you are maturing in God? And for John, for decades, these are words he used, words he received from Jesus, words he passed on to others. And all this was about abiding in God. John talks a lot about abiding and remaining, connecting. It's per language I use a lot of trying to pray over the church in a way where you are staying connected to God, abiding in God, remaining in God. I do this with my kids when we're walking around. That there are times now, it's a little better now, they're, they're 11 and 8. But when we are going through parking lots, when we're walking through stores, that, countless times I'm having to look at them and say like, I need you to stay with me, all right? Don't get distracted, especially in parking lots. That's the worst, all right? Stay with me. Because when I say speed up and hurry, I don't need you to go at the same pace you were at. I need you to speed up and hurry through the parking lot. And if they're in front of me, it's a mess, all right? Because my kids walk in front of me, they get distracted, and then they stop, and I trip over them, and I'm getting to an age where it just starts to hurt when I'm tripping over my kids and falling, all right? Stay with me, because all it takes is a few seconds in the store for me to look and then turn around, and my kids aren't there. And when they're not there, I know there are three places I need to look. The Lego aisle, all right? the Pringle aisle or the baseball card aisle. There's a good chance I'm going to find them somewhere around there. I did the same thing when I was a kid. I know it's hard for you to believe this, 
My mom lost me so many times in stores. And sometimes because my mom would get distracted or she's walking and I'm ducking into clothes racks. I knocked over clothes racks so many times as a kid, embarrassed my mom. And it got embarrassing a little bit when my mom would yell at me saying, Josh, I expected this when you were four, but not when you were 18 years old, all right? <laughs> but I think how many times is it like God is looking at me saying, I need you to stay with me. You walk with me. Stay connected to me. Remain with me. We're moving. We're going. We're walking. When I say speed up, I need you to speed up. When I see sl- say slow down, I need you to slow down. But I need you to stay with me and how easily it is for me to get distracted in life. Looking to the left, looking to the right, moving at a pace that is not the pace of God. Especially for those of you who are at camp this past week, experiencing so many things that God did for you and taught you. Now, how are you going to live this out? How are you going to walk with the God who is walking with you at camp that when God says speed up, you're going. When he says, slow down, you're slowing down, but you are staying connected to God. Here's how John goes. Second John, look in verse four. Now let's just go through each verse. Here's what John says in verse four. I was overjoyed to find some of our children walking in the truth, just as we have been commanded by the Father. He says, I'm, I'm overjoyed. I bet you have felt this way. Parents in the room, you have felt this way. Teachers in the room, you have felt this way with some of your students. When you see them doing something that is good and your heart is filled with joy because of how you see it. But I don't know if you notice this with John. He says, I'm overjoyed that some of you are walking in the truth, meaning some of them were not. And I wonder in that church when they were reading this letter, if there were some people in the church saying, well, I'm in the sun, but you were not, all right? Not that we would ever do that in church. But he's saying, hey, I'm overjoyed. Some of you are walking. It's not just walking with God. It's walking in, it's walking in the truth. You've got to know what truth is. In verse 5, he says this. I want you to notice something really closely. But now, all right, dear lady, I ask you, and some of your versions are way too nice with this. It's not just that I ask you, like I'm making a request. It is I urge, I plead. It's like I am begging. But now, dear lady, I am begging the church. Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have had from the very beginning, let us love one another. I want you to, what he says is, I'm not giving you a new commandment anymore. Though that command, love one another, at one point, it was a new commandment. So decades earlier, John's writing about being with Jesus. And there was a time when Jesus, in John chapter 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. And here's the new commandment, that you love one another. Which meant that at that time, people had not received that as a commandment. There was a lot of conditional love going on. You love who you want to love. You hate who you want to hate. And Jesus says, here's a brand new commitment, commandment. You love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the greatest forms of evangelism in the world today is how the church loves each other. And people who aren't in the church sees how the church loves one another. And then it points them to the greatness of God. That when the church fails to love one another, it becomes a black eye that keeps the world from seeing God's love. But here's John writing to this church saying, hey, this isn't a new commandment anymore. Like decades have gone by. You should know this by now. Like you should know how to live this out. There are times in my own life where I know I'm about to say something or I do say something. I'm about to post something or I do post something. And the moment I do, the moment I'm about to, or as I'm reflecting on it, I have to think to myself, okay, wait, if I've been baptized into Jesus, if I confess Jesus as the Lord of my life, here's something I can't do or can't say. 
There are times where I hear people make comments, and my response is, if you've been baptized, you can't say that anymore. You can't say you won't pray for Muslims anymore. Not if you've given your life over to Jesus. You can't make racial jokes anymore. Not if you've been baptized into Jesus. You can't make jokes or downplay the Me Too movement. Not if you've been, given, not if you've been baptized and have given your life over to Jesus. There's some things you cannot say. You cannot do. You can't let your heart go there. Not if you've been given your life over to Jesus who tells us, hey, it's, it was a new commandment years ago, but now this should just be part of who you are. We love one another. No strings attached. It's the love of God working in us and pouring through us. You love one another. In verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard, you have heard from the beginning, you must walk in it. I wonder when John was writing this, if he was 80, 90 years old, I wonder if John was even able to walk at that point in his life. Yet this was an image he held on to that the church needs to know how to walk with God. One of my favorite verses, and when I was in high school and age 17, 18, and I, God had worked a number on my own life, and one of my favorite verses in that time, I remember writing this verse over and over again, was 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, that whoever says, I abide in him, must walk just as Jesus walked. Whoever says, I abide in him, whoever says, I love him, whoever confesses his name must walk just as Jesus walked. So when it comes to walking with God, what would you say is the greatest distraction in your life keeping you from walking with God? What would you say is the greatest challenge or obstacle in your life to walking with God? If you had to write it down, how would you articulate it? What would be the word or the phrase or the sin or the, the challenge To you walking with God, what is the greatest distraction keeping you from God? And how can you lay that in front of the Lord as a form of confession to help you and to help the church walk more faithfully? Now, a lot of times when we think about walking with God, you may be thinking about your own life, God and you, just the two of you walking together. That's not how John envisions walking with God. It's the church walking together with God that we're going somewhere. Because there were some major challenges in the church where John was writing. And here were the challenges in verse 7. He says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess that Jesus Christ is coming to flesh, and any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. What they had then were missionaries who would go from church to church, envision people who would come to churches and say, I have a a six-week series on love and would love to spend some time with the church talking about this. So you had these missionaries and ministers who would go to churches and they would ask for hospitality. Like, hey, somebody needs to put us up. And the church later on down the road, they came up with these rules that if someone comes to your city having a word for the Lord, you house them one night and maybe two, but if they ask for three or more, it is not someone of God. You need to send them on their way. And apparently there were these people coming into this church, wanting to speak a word to the church. But the big thing is they were soft on the humanity of Jesus. Maybe they believed Jesus was fully God, but they, didn't, they weren't teaching. They were soft on Jesus being fully human, the incarnation, Jesus being one with us. Even then, there were a lot of people in the church then who did not struggle with the idea of Jesus dying on a cross. A lot of people died on a cross then. There were major challenges about the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus because it went against biology and science and just how life worked. 
And it became a creed for the church to believe Jesus was born of a virgin, fully human, that Jesus died on a cross and what that means for us and that Jesus was raised from the dead. In verse 8, it says this, be on your guard. It's like have this filter in your life. You should have this every time you come to church or anytime you're listening to anyone speaking words of God. Anytime you're listening to me, there should be some filter in your life where you are taking truth and laying it before God and discerning, is this something I need in my life or not? You gotta be on your guard so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but may receive a full reward. In verse nine, everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, it's very specific, not just the teaching, but the teaching of Christ goes beyond it, does not have God, and whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And listen to this in verse 10 and 11. Do not receive into your house or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching for to welcome is to participate in the evil deeds of such a person. Let me ask you this. How serious are you at what you allow in your house and what you make sure you keep out of your house? Because here, they're not just talking about unbelievers coming into your house. It's people who are coming saying it's a word from God, but it's really not a word from God. But for us, what are we allowing into our homes? For those parents in the room who have a lot of tablets and screens, how protective of you are what is coming into your house? Allowing screens behind closed doors, maybe not knowing what has happened, allowing certain emotions or things we watch that aren't of the righteousness of God. What are we allowing into our own home? And what are we keeping out of our home? There are other places where John is challenging the church. Be more hospitable. Be a safe place for people. But there are times where he is saying, when it comes to evil, you've got to keep it out. Because for John, what is on the line when he writes to this church are three things. What's on the line is this, the humanity of Jesus. The church, believers, early, you know, new believers, people need to believe Jesus was fully human. And Jesus is not currently sitting on a throne in the distant space, not engaged with what's going on in your life, because the last thing Jesus said in Matthew 28 when he ascended into the heavens is, I am with you always. And what was on the line for them was responsibility to love one another which is still on the line every single week in the life of the church and in the life of our world. And thirdly, what was on the line was walking and abiding in Jesus. That we don't ever reach a point in our lives where we coast or we sit for too long, but that we are walking and abiding in Christ. Let me introduce you to a lady. Her name's Shirley. And uh, if you go to that next image, Shirley's the crossing guard at Snowden Elementary, where my kids go. We've known Shirley for years. Truth's about to be in fifth grade. We've known Shirley for five years. I would vote for Shirley. It's the best crossing guard in all of Memphis. Um, it, Shirley, she's, she's so nice. Casey and I pick up our boys together on Fridays. It's my day off. It's her day off, and we walk together, and a lot of times we hold hands walking across the street, and Shirley thinks it's the coolest thing. She's like, I just don't see married people hold hands much. How long y'all been married? And I'm like, guess. How long do you think we've been married? I do this all the time at restaurants now. I'm like, hey, whoever is serving me, I just want you to know, I'm about to give you a 20% tip, but if you can guess within one year of how long we've been married, I'm going to add $2 to this tip. It's so fun, all right? Uh, and nobody's gotten it yet, all right? Shirley's like, oh, you're newlyweds, three years. And I'm like, no, 16, you're wrong, all right? But, but we, we've gotten to know Shirley. Casey takes Shirley presents. 
Shirley's so nice, but Shirley goes crazy as the crossing guard, all right? She knows how to blow the whistle. I've seen her throw herself in front of cars, all right? She yells at people. Can we just agree on something? Memphis drivers are crazy, right? <laughs> how many of you believe Memphis drivers are just straight up crazy? How many of you contribute to the craziness, all right? You know it. You know it. If Memphis police would set up cameras where Snow Elementary is and catch people who are speeding through speed zones and running red lights, they could fund that department for a year, all right? So I've seen Shirley do her work. And Shirley's a great crossing guard. She throws herself in front of cars. And there are times where all the time. Shirley is walking with children from one side of the street to the other. She's walking with them. She's holding up signs. And it's been this image for me for years of what it means to walk with God. A crossing guard has been this image for me. That Shirley doesn't sit in the chair on one side of the street and when it looks clear, like just pat kids on the back and wish them luck as they cross the street. Or wait for them just to come to her wherever she is. Shirley is right there in the crossroads and intersections. Moving the kids from one side to the other. And it's been this image for me. For over 15 years of what it's like to walk with Jesus. That Jesus is not just in your baptism at camp or wherever you were baptized and then patting you on the back and wishing you luck in the kingdom of God. And Jesus isn't on the other side just trying to wave you to eternity in the end, Jesus is right in the middle of it, right in the thick of it, right there with you, moving you through the crossroads and intersections. And it's not just become an image for me of what Jesus offers, it's what the church is to be for each other. That Sunday mornings isn't just us wishing people luck, but how can we connect with one another in a way that we are moving with one another through the obstacles and crossroads and intersections of life? which means we also have to allow other people into our lives to do that, right? I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go to your places this morning to receive people. And I want to thank the church, too. Last week, we sent you to tables with a very specific request, and I, just, I keep this stack with me of the prayer requests you gave us that we've been praying over throughout the week. And our tables are available this morning if you want to go and just write something down for us to be lifted up for you. Today, you may be thinking about distractions. You may be thinking about walking with God. You may be thinking about coming off a week of camp and experiencing something with God and not wanting to lose it. So if there's anything we can do for you, we want to be that for you. If there's something you want to bring in front of this church or if someone here who wants to be baptized into Christ today, we invite you to come to the front. Kelly's up here with me. Let's stand together, church, and let's sing a song.